0: Hey guys, Troy here. Before we get to the podcast, I just wanted to take a quick moment to fill you in on something. With 2022 fast approaching, our year-end giving campaign is coming to a close. Thanks to your generosity, so far we have raised just over $164,000, putting us at 82% of the way. So thank you to everyone who has donated so far. Your support helps us to boldly and creatively share the gospel across Canada. We still need to raise another $36,000 to reach our year-end goal of $200,000. All we ask is that you would prayerfully consider supporting Apologetics Canada to help us cross the finish line. And now for the podcast.
1: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger. I'm also joined today with Andy. I guess you could call this the Andy and Andy Podcast. Andy Bannister,
0: welcome to the show. Andy Steiger, it's great to be on the show.
1: (laughs) Now, uh, Andy, this is, you know, it's interesting you and I doing a podcast because this is, this is actually kind of dangerous. My wife has vowed never to be in the same room as you and I, because when we get talking, we yeah. just
0: don't stop. It got loud. I remember, I remember every time you and I in a room. And then I remember you came to Scotland. My first, first year I was in Scotland. I remember it being you and your wife and me. And I just remember poor Nancy, I think, just trying to work out what on earth she landed in the middle of.
1: Yeah, she, she just had
0: enough. But by the way, speaking of the Scotland trip,
1: I got to thank you for introducing me to haggis and iron brew.
0: Oh dear! On the 1st time with you, iron brew. Yeah, not so much. But haggis is is great, and of course, there's a biblical connection because the plural of haggis is of course haggai. <laughs> how how did I know you would be able to even? And if
1: there's somebody that can make a joke out of haggis, it's Andy Bannister. Now I was i gonna be, be honest, but before we jump into things here, I just got to say. I'm imagining, you know, as I'm in Scotland, which I, I can't think of a more manly place than Scotland, you know, because I, th- I think a brave heart. <laughs> well, there's the British light. Columbia. I mean, that's yeah. pretty manly. You've got bears. Well, but we don't have haggis and no. we definitely don't have iron brew. So I remember Andy Bannister telling me, well, if you're going to have a- haggis, you've got to have it with iron brew. You know, you got to say it more Scottish, right? Like iron brew. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be the thickest. Beer I've ever drank in my life, and I'm 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 looking forward to this manly brew. And instead, what I get is what I would call bubblegum
0: flavored soda. It is, it is, and the, the Scots are very proud of it. I think they, I think, I think there used to be the fact that Scotland is the only country in the world where the best selling carbonated beverage is not made by either Coca Cola or the PepsiCo company. So they, it's their own thing, and they're proud of it. I'm going to tell you, though, it's weird.
1: Uh, Oh, it is that. (laughs) But I do enjoy bubblegum-flavored soda. At any rate, listeners, we're going to jump into things today. We have uh, Andy on the show to talk about his new book. Let me introduce him, though, properly, as I have not done yet. Uh, Andy is the director of SOLAS. Uh, He's also an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur and Jeffrey Center for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. I did a terrible job saying that, and an adjunct faculty member at Wycliffe College, University of Toronto.
0: <laughs> and, and he's just looking at me like, I know that. Of course, the other important. Why thing, am I'm, I on
1: this podcast?
0: <laughs> I'm an associate or adjunct with you guys now. I think. Yes, you are. We, we got. We got to add that. We got to add that uh, now. This is that's actually the one that matters. This that's is exciting,
1: actually, because Andy and I have worked together for many years. Uh, Almost, I think like ten years, man. We you had hair, I think. <laughs> Not that long. No, we haven't been working together that long. We've been working together for a long time, and so this was cool. He and I were talking like, "Hey, we need to we need to work together." Uh, Andy now is an adjunct speaker for Apologics Canada, and I have the privilege of being an adjunct speaker for Soulos, uh, which is a real privilege. So, yes, uh, we're excited to do ministry with you, continuing here in Canada and in Scotland. Many exciting opportunities coming down the tube, but that's not for this episode. We'll talk about that another time. We're going to get into your book today, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God, which is a great book. I've been looking forward—now, now, honestly, I'm not just saying this. I have felt like somebody has needed to write this book for a long time. Because I can't tell you the number of conversations that I have had with people regarding Islam and them asking me this this very question. I'm sure you've received this question a number of times, and it's probably what provoked you to write the book.
0: It's funny you say that, right? Because when the book came out, I got a lot of, I got sort of deluged on social media by ironically two different types of person. One type of person coming after me to say, Well, the answer is obviously yes. Why did you write the book? And another type of person saying, "Well, obviously the answer is no. Why did you write the book?" <laughs> it was often <laughs> I would just like introduce each set to the other set and go, "See." Um, So yeah, I was going to say it's a very it's a very common question, Andy. It's the question behind many questions. It's often assumed without people thinking about it. And I think the last piece I'd say there are some books out there addressing it, but they do so in quite a sort of academic, uh, quite unapproachable way. And if you know my my style, similar to yours, actually. I like your material because you write very accessibly. Both of you and I can write academically, but we can both write accessibly. And so I really wanted to write something that was kind of funny, fast moving, easy to get into. And so for folks who are not perhaps theologians, but want a, a handle on the question, that was the goal.
1: And you you did a great job. It, it is a wonderful book. I I, I recommend it to all of you listening uh this is a, a great book to get into one of the things you know and we're going to get into part of the book today so uh you'll 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 get a bit of a flavor for it but but by no means you know are you going to get the full book in this podcast really this is a teaser and I hope that you do get the book uh it's wonderful now one of the things that was interesting Andy is I'm as I started reading uh your book which I love. I love your writing because you you have a great sense of humor, which you bring into the book. Now, I don't get all the jokes. Uh, there were a couple in there that are clearly UK puns, but that's fine. Uh, I, I no, still well, it, it, it may just be they weren't funny, Andy. That's That, is the other, <laughs> and, the and other that very well could be the case. <laughs> but it was interesting as I'm reading the book, the first thought that, that came to my mind was I, I remember thinking to myself, man, I wonder what Andy's introduction to apologetics is uh, I, and I'm not kidding you this is the question that was going on as I as I was reading your intro and I was thinking well I wonder what you know how did Andy get into uh, apologetics what was that story and then of course as I get into the book I realize that you actually start to share that story and if I understand correctly Islam was really your introduction wow. into apologetics and specifically a, a guy
0: that we both actually know a guy by the name of Jay that's right Jay Smith yeah, you're absolutely right. So I often I often say to Muslim friends that it's it's bizarre actually that it was Muslims and their questions who are responsible for me getting into well apologetics and also many ministry. So I told the story in the book, but the long, the short version of it is, Andy, that in the mid late 1990s I was a youth worker working for a group of churches in in London. hadn't really thought about apologetics or public proclamation of. What were of you the doing faith. for work? If I could just jump Sorry? in here. What were you doing for work at the time? Well, At like- that point, I was my first job. I'd been I'd worked for a large London teaching hospital doing conference management. Then I jumped out of that into ministry. I'd been doing youth work on the side, and the youth work had kind of taken over. So I, I moved, made the move into into public ministry. Okay, so you're the, working kind of in a church. Uh, well, what I was doing actually was, um, which I suppose actually in some ways, I taught me a lot that came useful for apologetics. I was doing what in the UK we call schools ministry. So I was I was hired by a group of four or five churches to go and build connections to all the local high schools. So I would find any ways we could do it, sport, you know, religious studies, lessons, uh, you know, uh, reading support, anything we could do to get a foot in the door of the school and build connections. And, and one, one thing, thing I got the ability to do is in the UK, yeah. every school has to have, it sounds funny, a, a what's called still, a, still called in law a daily act of collective worship, which basically means they get all the kids together and someone says something inspirational. Teachers hate it. So lots of you know, lots of us who are Christians use that as the way in. So I would often get to go and talk to a thousand young people, you know, age between 11 and 18, on a Monday morning, and you're told you've got five minutes, and if you get if you get too direct on the God thing, they're not going to ask you back. So you you learn quite fast. But I hadn't really discovered apologetics um, at this point until, as I say, um, talk more about this in the book. One one day, uh, Jay Jay Smith, you can Google Jay. Folks don't don't know him very well-known engager and and, uh, debater with Muslims, came to our church, did a a seminar on on understanding and reaching Muslims, and in that described how every Sunday he was going up to Speaker's Corner, part of one of our big parks in London, standing on a ladder, preaching to all the Muslims who could be found there. He and I got talking after the seminar. He was very engaging. He said, well, Andy, why why don't you come to Speaker's Corner next week, see what we do, and lo and behold, I went up to London the following week to be met at the train station by Jay carrying not one but two ladders and I said, why well, have you got two? But, dude, he went, one's for me to preach and one's for you, Andy. I, th- I said, Jay, you should come and see. He went, oh, best views up a ladder. I went, I've never preached on the street before. It's easy, he said. I've never talked to Muslims before. They're easy, he told me. Both those things were false, Andy, because the Muslims <laughs> there were well prepared for Christians. And thus, I got my first very, very much crash course introduction I to the fact it. that not everybody- I love it because he brings a second ladder
1: as you talk in the book and yeah. invites you up on this ladder. It's your first time out at Speaker's Corner and saying- all right. It was a Share total gong show. It was
0: it was it was a gong show to end all gong shows. A hot mess, as they would say. Yeah, because I got on that ladder. The Muslims had questions and objections. I knew nothing. I remember getting down from the ladder, thinking, "Well, I need to become a Muslim because they have all the answers." And then, thankfully, the next day, I thought before doing anything stupid, I would go to the local Christian bookstore and sort of tell them my story. And the guy behind the counter said, "Oh, what you want, mate, is you want apologetics." I thought that sounded like a breakfast cereal. Actually, it's like a type of muesli, but of course, it's not. It's the art and science of you know persuasion. And yes. uh, I bought my first ever books on apologetics. I think from yes. memory, it was C.S. C.S. Lewis, *Mere Christianity*. Yes. Uh, Josh McDowell, *Evidence Demands a Verdict*, and then *Answering Islam: The Crescent and the Light of the Cross* by Norman Geisler. They were my first three. They're still on the shelf behind me somewhere. And that got answers to every question I read. Found answers to everything they'd, they'd asked. Went back two weeks later, loaded for bear, and they had new questions. And I looked stupid all over again. And we did this little game for the next three months. Go to, go to Speaker's corner on the weekend, find out the things I don't know, and then go home desperately trying to sort of read, study, talk to others. And I got a crash course in Muslim apologetics over those three months.
1: It's interesting, you know, that you can be in ministry and not know what apologetics is definitely something you know i mean that could be a whole show in of itself we're not we're not going down that rabbit trail but this this whole experience would ultimately lead to you doing uh, a phd in islamic studies and i want to talk about that but before we do i have to ask you a question first because jay is like legendary and one of the things and i just want to hear your thoughts on this cuz one of the one of the legends that i've heard with regards to jay is he's an extreme pacifist and that there have been times, I heard I heard this one story where he got punched at Speaker's Corner, calmly picks up his glasses off the ground, puts them back on, and proceeds to go back up the ladder to to share about Jesus again. Yeah,
0: to so, go, I, I wasn't there when he got punched, but I was there when he got pushed off a ladder a few times. By the time I got there, he would very proudly show you he'd got these special glasses that no matter how you twisted them, the frames didn't break. I don't. It was quite clever how they did this <laughs> because he lost two or three pairs of glasses, and it was actually more annoyed by the fact that he kept running out of glasses. So he had these sort of, you know, a sort of punch-proof spectacles. But no, he was—he's a Mennonite, so you know that that tradition sort of leans traditionally very much that way. And Jay, Jay lived that out. And the other thing I'm very grateful for—we're talking like it sounds like he's dead, but he's—he's he's very much still going. Yeah. I also it's also interesting when i when i've told this story and jay's around because i have told this story often when jay's around and jay will always say so what i don't know what happened so i've never done that with anybody else and then he you know he the point he adds to it he says i think he said he obviously saw something in me i don't know what he saw because i didn't i hadn't seen it but but i think there's a real lesson there about giving young folks a chance and so i always you know you're probably the same you come across like younger ones i'm always praying okay lord is there somebody that you want me to give a chance to like Jay gave me a chance to, because it's insane on many ways, but I put the newbie up the ladder. Um, but praise the Lord he did. Because yeah, that, that sparked the interest in apologetics. I started reading, discovered I was academic. I was 28 at this point, never been to university, didn't come from a university going sort of family. That wasn't us. We were kind of, you know, sort of lower middle class, maybe sort of upper working class kind of thing. We weren't that sort of family, but eventually decided we'd try Bible college. My wife and I scrimped and saved and made it work. You were, you were married because you were married at this time, right? I was. Yeah, so my long-suffering wife is like, you know, wondering what on earth her husband's got himself into. Um, but then also, you know, praise the Lord for her, because when I felt, you know, God giving me the nudge to go and sort of study formally, I think I got, you know, I'd written it off, we couldn't afford it, because we were, you know, you just a lot of money in youth work, and she was on a fairly low salary. And finally, after weeks of my whinging, she said, "Okay, let's just come on. Let's sit down and get a cup of tea and actually look at the budget." And we figured out if I worked in the summer, our budget literally exactly balanced with me going to Bible college. It wasn't like slightly one way or the other; it literally exactly balanced. And then the day I started the Bible college, she lost her job, which was amazing. So we went from <laughs> two jobs to one job to no jobs. So I think God was sort of really testing us. And for a while, it was quite interesting.
1: <laughs> uh, that's incredible. Now, eventually, this would lead you to doing. Um... PhD. It did, uh, yeah. S- studies. No, I didn't
0: know where to stop. That was the thing. I just sort of studied and kept going.
1: Uh, that's great. And what was it that you did your your doctorate in with regards to Islam?
0: Yeah, so I I picked when I when I went to seminary, I picked the one like Christian seminary um, in the UK that had a department of Islamic studies run by a former missionary, and um, and we you know became became friends, and at the end of my undergraduate degree, he persuaded me to do a master's. And it was about three months into the Masters, actually, he called me to his office and sat me down with a very serious look on his face. He, he's Australian, and they have a strange sense of humour. And he said, oh, well, the reason I called you in for a meeting, Andy, is there's a bit of a problem with your work? And then I think he realised that he pushed this this lot too far because I looked very worried. He went, OK, no, 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 calm down. He said, basically, you're writing at PhD level, and that's a bit of a waste in a Masters student. So what about upgrading you to the PhD? And I said, well, how long will that take? He went, oh, a couple of years extra. Yeah, six years extra. But what I did, um, Andy, was I'd become fascinated by this point. One of the arguments that Muslims had used at Speaker's Corner ran like this. It said, look, Muhammad, the founder of Islam, was illiterate. He could neither read nor write. But the Quran is this amazing work of world literature. So therefore, it must be a miracle, because how could an illiterate person produce a work of literature like this? Now, if each step in that argument stands up, it's actually quite persuasive, actually. You know, it's um, how could someone who's illiterate produce a work like this? But there's one big assumption in it. The assumption is that cultures without writing, oral cultures, are basically stupid and can't produce great works of of, of art uh, or literary art. And we know that's not the case because the two kind of founding poems that stand at the the root of the Western literary tradition, Homer, uh, not the little yellow guy, the Greek poet, um, Homer's uh, Iliad and Odyssey, we know those two long-form poems must have been created in some way we're not you know up until until they were studied we're not familiar with because they predate writing we know they were they were circulating before writing was invented and lo and behold it turns out there are tools and techniques that you can use if you're an oral poet oral performer oral preacher in a culture without writing to actually produce quite long works of literature and here's the fun thing they leave their mark on the text and we can study the text we have today looking for certain indicators and the more of those indicators we find the more likely it is that the text you're looking at has actually been composed live in performance effectively in front of an audience almost you know extemporaneously and uh, all the signs and th- and, and, and signifiers that we find in works like homer's poems we find massively more of them even in the quran so the quran looks totally like it was in fact uh, created by an oral or literate person so i always say to muslims on the one hand my my PhD, which really demonstrated that in huge detail, on the one hand, it supports you know one of those early claims of Islam. It, it does indeed look like whoever preached this probably was illiterate. But at the same time, it also demolishes the idea that it came directly from heaven in any shape or form. It has very, very human oral fingerprints all over it.
1: Let me just, let's just get something out of the way, because I, I don't know, whenever I talk about Islam, people always pronounce Muslim and Quran differently. I've heard Muslim and I've also heard Quran. like so how do you wh- where have you landed on how you're going to pronounce
0: well the-, the first thing is you arguably in one sense you're partly possibly taking talking to the wrong person going like my Arabic pronunciation is useless Muslim friends always <laughs> like dude but the point is generally speaking it's Muslim um that way not Muslim on the versions you hear it's generally most people pronounce it Muslim and Quran, if you can, it's to throw that first kind of syllable in the back of the throat. Quran is where you are aiming at. Um, yeah. I always thought it's, it's Bill Craig. I think does this very strange pronunciation. We always, Kirin! Um <laughs> uh, or sort of words that effect. I've heard people do, and it's like oh, no, I, it's I've not. Heard, yeah, I've heard all sorts of
1: pronunciations.
0: Okay, so that, that's good. All right, so w-
1: at least we know we're butchering it. We're not saying we're not saying it quite right, but we
0: know how we should be saying it. Absolutely. And to be fair, I mean, let's be honest, no one knows how New Testament Greek was pronounced, right? We don't know what, right, what the true. accent was. And we don't, we don't know how the Romans spoke Latin, do we? Maybe they had high squeaky voices. And <laughs> I were the Romans. And, as uh, as anyway, I, uh, what's that? I said back to reality. Anyway.
1: <laughs> Which, by the way, uh, the Homer joke, I got it, man. I was with you. Thank I you. Was I'm glad you were that you didn't think I was with you. I, I got it. But one of the things I like about the way you frame the book, so you're taking that question, you know, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? And you basically break it into four questions. Uh, is there a God? And if so, what is God like? Uh, and, and by these four questions, it's really what you're getting at is worldview. Um, sure. Who and what are human beings? What is wrong with the world? What's the solution? So now this is my pitch to listeners to read the book. We're not going to go into all four of these questions. We can't. Nor are we going to try.
0: Uh, My publisher will be after you with a, with a stick <laughs> with an nail in the end. You say you
1: exactly because then nobody's going to buy the book. No, I, I would encourage you to, to check this out because what Andy's doing is he's he's taking the Islamic worldview and laying that over these questions and then comparing contrasting it with the Christian worldview, which I think is a really innovative way uh, to get at this this question. So I just want to take a look at this first question, really, Andy, and that is you know, is there a God? And I think this is the key, because we we understand that both Christians and Muslims believe that that there is a God, but so you have to push it a step further. And in Islamic studies, this is this is really where the rubber hits the road. Uh, what is God like? And that allows us then to take you know the Christian worldview and the Islamic worldview and and put those you know compare and contrast and say, well, what kind of what kind of God do we see in those two, especially if we're going to ask if Christians and Muslims are worshiping
0: the same God? Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot going on there, just by way of introduction as we head into that. Those four questions that you you mapped out, I think they are helpful for a number of reasons, Andy. I mean they're, they're, it's a slight I, not, they're not totally original to me. I got a variation of them from from N.T. Wright and then who some of you may have come across well famous theologian, and then I sort of spun them slightly. And the fun thing is that the questions two, three, and four flow out of the first. You see, what you think about what God is like will impact what you think about human beings. And that's a topic that you've written on. And if I footnote you in the book, so, uh, so you, you, you get a footnote in the section on what humanity is. And of course, what you think God is like and what he thinks humanity is like will then flow into the, well, what does that God think has gone wrong with the world and what's he done? So they all flow along, but they start from the, the God questions, first thing. Second thing is... It's interesting, I did, a, I did a dialogue the other night at Dundee University, the, the university of my hometown, on this very topic, funnily enough, with a local imam. So it was me and him and a bunch of students. And so it was fun to use some of this material kind of live. And, and the thing I really pushed into there, I do it a bit in the book, but particularly in the live context of saying, you know, the thing is people use, excuse me, use words without clarifying, right, of going, we throw a word like God out there, and we assume that when we say Christians believe in God, Muslims believe in God, the confusion all begins because everyone assumes the word means the same. And sometimes if we just take a step back and use a, an example of a different word. You see why you need to clarify. You know, I would say Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump both believe in politics. So if you therefore concluded that those two gentlemen have exactly the same view of the world, it'd be bonkers. And you would have to say to, you know, you're sitting down and go, so, Justin, what do you mean by politics? What's your what's your political philosophy? <laughs> Donald, if you could get him to, you know, answer a straight question without turning orange. You know, what is but my point? You see my point to go the same word, very different things. And the same is true of God. And it's important, therefore, as Christians, if we're talking to Muslim friends or, quite frankly, to friends and other religious traditions, it's a great question to say, oh, great, you believe in God. Tell me about the God you believe in. Because I would say both the Bible and the Quran both assume that God exists neither really give you an argument for God the Quran doesn't set out to say let me try and convince you there is one neither does the Bible but the Bible if you remember in the book of James goes so far as to say even the demons believe in God and tremble belief in God you know you're, you're quite frankly a fool if you don't believe in God would be the Bible and the Quran's answer but both books I think are concerned with the bigger question of well what sorts of God are we talking about and they offer very, very different understandings of the answer to that question, such that as we go, I think we'll see it's questionable whether it's the same God we're talking about.
1: Well, and one of the one of the problems I think that where this question often will will start is is a matter of semantics where people will say, well, we're talking about Allah, for example, and you know Christians worship Allah and Muslims worship Allah. And and so it's it's very much just kind of semantical. Like, look, it's the same word in Arabic, uh, and so it, and then and then it's kind of like this. The logic goes: well, if it's the same word, you know, in Arabic, well, yeah. it must be the the same God. I I don't know if you've ever come across that. I, I... oh gee yeah yeah
0: you, you run into you run into that quite a lot. And I think the the politics illustration helps. Or the other thing I do in the book is say: look, there's definitely a graduation of things going on. You know, you and I can have very different understandings of the same person you know the example i use in the book is the you know the hollywood actor uh leonardo dicaprio you know my my wife thinks he's the most amazing thing ever to sort of strut the boards i think he's a he's a a wooden plank uh you know i thought we almost lost him in the titanic but he came back again i can't stand the guy now you hear us talk about him you might assume that we're talking about different people but then actually it's the same person so that does go on on the other hand if you know you and i sort of chit-chatting and we think we have you know, a friend in common, because I lived in Canada for eleven for six years and you've lived there for a long time. And we both happen to know someone called Steve who lives in Vancouver. And so, but as it goes on, it turns out that, you know, my friend Steve is six foot, your friend Steve is, is four foot. You know, my friend Steve, you know, is a, is a geek who loves sci-fi. Your friend Steve loves Shakespeare and has never lo- watched a Star Trek movie in anger. You know, how long does the list have to go before we conclude, okay, we've used the same name, Steve, but clearly we do not, this, this is not denoting the same person and so the question and I'm, I, th- I'm, I think I'm careful not to assume it at the start of the book is we can't what we certainly can't do is assume the word God means the same thing it could do it could be that Muslims and Christians are describing the same kind of God but we actually need to sort of as it were you know pop the you know lift the lid off the Quran the Bible and go okay what do these two books say about God and as we actually bother to read them and see what they say then we can decide okay are we talking about the same God, or, or perhaps even just you know minor variations on the same thing, or is it so radical we're in more of the sort of Steve situation?
1: And, and isn't that often the case? Is that the you know we don't pop the metaphorical hood you know on the religion and and you know and actually read what they teach, what what do they believe? And we make a lot of assumptions. This was something that really surprised me in my studies. Is is you know you would hear people ask what I would just say is quite frankly an ignorant question when they'd say do do all religions lead to god yeah and it's like well you're assuming that all religions believe god exists or even trying to reach him which as you look into various religions you begin to realize that, that that's actually not the case and their view you know of god and their relationship with god is is very different and it it reminds me you know logically speaking if we talk about something like the indiscernibility of identicals if we see you know, as you're talking about with your example of Steve, that, that you know, my, my, the Steve I'm thinking of is five foot, you know, and the Steve you're thinking of is six foot, and the Steve I'm thinking of, you know, is from South Korea, and the Steve you're thinking about is from, you know, Mississippi. I mean, you know, we, we could just keep going, you know, yeah. you start, you start to realize, no, I, we're not talking about the same Steve here. And this is what I, what I find interesting is when, you know, is that question? Well, have you actually looked into that religion? Like, have you looked at what the God of the Bible, you know, what 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 that God looks like versus what the God of
0: the Quran looks like? I think you did right. I think I think there's a lot of I, I think there's a couple of these going on. There's a lot. There's certainly lots of ignorance. Um, I mean, I, th- I remember sort of a few, a few years ago, sort of where it started as a tweet, and I've sort of expanded to a more serious point, which is that you know I. I, I remember tweeting on one occasion that you know someone who told you that all the world's religions are essentially the same is I mean that's about, that's about as much wisdom as somebody saying every book in the library tells the same story that doesn't that's not wisdom that that just shows you haven't read any yep. and most people I think who assume it's the same haven't actually studied now that's not wholly the case there are some who have and there's a more sophisticated version of this going on but the majority it's the case they they haven't now to be fair it's often driven by a well-meaning some people want to kind of push christianity and islam together because there's a sense of well maybe that'll bring peace and tolerance if we all worship the same god, To which i often say yes yeah, sunnis and shiites kind of been killing each other for for centuries and it's the same religion let alone the, the same god but then the other thing andy that causes confusion and again we talk i talk about this in the book a bit there's this sort of abrahamic faiths concept that a lot of people who know you know a little bit have got it into their heads, or to be fair, have been taught at school or college or university, or wherever. that you know, Islam and Christianity and Judaism, they are all Abrahamic faiths. They are all, you know, relate closely related. And one thing I think is important for Christians to do, quite frankly, is go, that is not the case. In fact, the, the more recent scholarship on the origins of Islam has made this clearer and clearer and clearer. I mean, Christianity and Judaism, they are they are sister religions. The first Christians were largely all Jewish, the New Testament is saturated in Jewish theology and Jewish categories. The New Testament quotes or alludes to the Old Testament from memory, something like two thousand times. If you count the, the allusions as well as the quotations, the Quran, on the other hand, there's just there's only one occasion where it possibly quotes the Old Testament, but even that's a bit vague. Um, the first Muslims were not Christian or Jewish. They lived, you know, they lived mar- th- hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from where Judaism and Christianity had taken place. You know, totally different context. Islam is an Arabian religion that's borrowed a, a Christian vocabulary, and that's what's caused confusion. And one of the illustrations I use in the book, I got from a, an academic friend of mine who's also a pastor in Australia, a guy called Mark Durie, he's got a PhD in Islam, but he's also, his first PhD was linguistics. He says, actually, what we see going on with Islam, we see analogies to that in linguistics, because there's a phenomenon in, in languages called, called a Creole. And the Creole is when you have the, uh, you have the vocabulary of one language has been stuck onto the grammar of, a, of another. And the famous example every linguist would talk about would be in Haiti. So uh, in Haiti, you've got uh, the Haitian Creole there, has French words, but has got a Haitian grammar underneath it. So if you go to Haiti and you hear a traditional speaker, and if you're a French speaker, you'll go, oh, I recognise all these words, but I can't make any sense of it because they're all joined together differently. Well, if you got it into your head that Haitian Creole was a Romance language, along with you know Spanish and Italian and whatever, you need your head read. It's not. What happened was it borrowed, for historical reasons, some of the language of French. And I think that's exactly what's gone on with Islam. Muhammad, when he preached and taught what became the Quran, picked up building blocks of Judaism and Christianity. Didn't often understand the theology underneath, and picked up the words and the ideas and bits of the story. And then, a bit like a child building something out of Lego bl- bricks built Islam out of it. And then, of course, later 21st century, folks come along and go, oh, well, clearly it's part of the same family of religions. No, it isn't. And I think we do disrespect to Islam if we do that, as well as disrespect to Christianity and Judaism, because we don't understand them properly.
1: And, and that's, I think, a really important point that I've seen in my own time interacting with Muslims is they have a misunderstanding of Christianity. And, and then you have other people who have a misunderstanding of Islam, where they'll just assume certain things, but you can have a similar thing taking place with regards to the Quran, where, for example, the Trinity is misrepresented, or you can have other aspects of the Christian faith that are misrepresented, and then the Muslim is going to see Christianity through, through that perspective. And by the Trinity, I mean the, they have this idea that Mary, for example, is a part of the Trinity, and... You know, and and obviously that's going to cause confusion very very quickly. But I mean, yeah. that's the famous example
0: um, where in the Quran it, it describes Christians as believing in in three gods: God, Mary, and and Jesus, which is not, as you know, mainstream Christian orthodoxy. By far the biggest one actually is often missed. The Quran famously in in ch- chapter four verse one hundred and fifty seven denies the crucifixion or appears mm-hmm. to deny the crucifixion. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting? Everyone but gets yet distra- affirms by- the miracles of Jesus, which is interesting. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. But more, but what the thing that people often miss, and I did at first, until it suddenly hit me like a bolt from the blue. The Quran doesn't really understand the resurrection. I mean, to go if you grabbed even the mo- you know the, even the most naive school high school student who'd just done a you know comparative religion one hundred and one, and you said, okay, dude, you know, tell me something about Christians. You'd like to think they go well, like, like Easter is important. Yeah, well done. You know, Christians <laughs> believe that you know Jesus died, rose from the dead. That's what Christian faith is? Well, the Quran doesn't get this. The Quran does not know that the resurrection is the central, defining, you know, belief for Christians around which the whole of Christian theology and hope are based. You know, it's the resurrection that was why Christianity split off from Judaism. It is the thing, and the Quran is totally ignorant of it. So that the Quran doesn't get that. You're like, well, Muslims want to say was was Allah having a bad day? I mean, even if the Quran referred to it to rebut it. But it doesn't even do that. So it's this massive gap, which is just which the only conclusion is that, you know, the people from the sources from Muhammad was getting some of this material that was floating around the oral context of Arabia there in the seventh century was not a particularly Christian context. I think it was probably more of a Jewish context, actually. And so people weren't talking about the resurrection. And so he didn't know about it.
1: So I think it's interesting you can get this going on both ways then, right? So you can have a, a Muslim that doesn't really understand Christianity, but you can have a Christian who doesn't really understand, you know, Correct. Islam. Yeah. Let's just take a moment as we as are coming close to our time here. What what is it, you know, what what is the view of God that Islam puts forward? Uh how how do they understand the Islamic God in particular?
0: Well, I'd say in the um In the book, I mean, I go into this in some detail, but I'd say that the the key attribute in the the Quran would be that uh, Allah is supreme will. That is, I think, the the controlling concept that underpins everything else. That time and time again, the Quran emphasizes that Allah only has to will a thing. And uh, and it is, um, you know, that God is arbitrary when it comes to things like, you know, forgiveness and mercy. Again, it all comes down to his will. If he wills it that you're forgiven, you will be. Otherwise, you won't be. So, supreme will uh, would be, I think, the controlling uh, idea there in in the in the Quran. And there are other things that spin off that. I mean, obviously, Muslims will tell you that, that, that Allah is compassionate and merciful, and those attributes are talked about. But I think they still sit under the concept of will. For the Bible, um, what well, I what I do in the book actually is I kind of flip that around. I look at five attributes of the God of the Bible, and then do a compare and contrast with what Islam says on his characteristics. That the, there are many we might take of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but I think the main ones. Uh, that again, the sort of controlling ones would be that he is a god who's relational. I mean, that's literally there on the very first page and the very last page. He walks and talks in the garden with Adam and Eve. He's there in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation twenty one. He's a god who could be known throughout the Bible. The whole message is that God doesn't just, just doesn't just reveal His will, but also reveals His character, His identity, His heart. He's a god who is holy. Um, interesting. That is not already a Quranic category. Actually, the idea that God that God would be you know just awesomely, totally essentially holy and, and good and righteous, really power is where it comes down to. It's almost like a Nietzschean view of God really that you know God has the will to power and so he can do what he likes.
1: which catches out interestingly with regards to uh, prophets. So if yes. so if, if you got Jesus you know who's viewed in Islam as a prophet, then they have a real hard time if if they' if that view of God is one of power, that God yes. would be beat up, you know, mocked and crucified.
0: Yeah, but interestingly, that what's fa- what's fascinating is how, and this is a discussion for a whole other time. that Islam never really evolved the category of, of theology. There's quite a sort of paucity of theological thought. I would say in Islam, such that it's quite a common phenomenon. I think to come across Muslims or even Muslim quite well thought through Muslims who will raise an objection to Christianity, and they're not really that things back on them. So at the university of the night. I had a couple of Muslims come and accost me after the talk, and we had a lovely sort of informal Q and A for 40 minutes with them. Two of them team tagging on, trying to ask the Christian difficult questions. It's like speakers' corner without ladders. But one <laughs> of the things they raised was the Jesus thing. They said, "Well, you know, how you know God is all powerful and supreme, and you know, very Islamic way of of coming into the conversation. So, so on how on earth could God, you know, be, be become weak and and step into history and the person of Jesus? Why would He do that?" And before I was saying why He would do it, because that's a great question. I said, I said, we do realize you chaps have the same problem. They went, well, no, we don't. I said, you do. I said, number one, if God is is totally, is utter power, supreme will, I mean, just infinitesimally, infinitely powerful. And that's the main attribute of God. That's why you agree. They went, yes. Okay. Why is that God in Islam? Why does he care about how many times, times a day you pray? I mean, quite frankly, you know, how how full of yourself are you? He's got better things to do. He's got a universe to run. You know, he's a supreme authority. You know, the Queen in Buckingham Palace doesn't care what I have for breakfast. But you think, so if you push the power thing to you, you get that problem. And then I said, secondly, in Islam, you believe that that God has revealed his word, his literal word in the Arabic language, which was at the time of the Quran's writing, what linguists call a defective script. It couldn't carry all the the nuances of the spoken language, because they hadn't got a vocalisation system, voweling system worked out. So, you know, again, your God chose to limit Himself by speaking through a defective language, whereas He could have just transplanted the Quran into everyone's brain. So, do you see? We both have the same thing going on. Both of us believe in a God who, to some degree, limited Himself. Now, we just need to ask which is the greater evidence for, you know, you know, for for God stepping into. Space and time in the person of the Quran, as it were, or stepping into space and time in the person of Jesus. And so,
1: I think that this is so this is so interesting as we're talking about you know working through these ideas because for Muslims this is really important. Like these kind of conversations, in they they don't use the word apologetics; it'd probably be more something like polemic or or something to that to that effect. But they're they're thinking through these things, and they're they're kind of they're kind of like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses in many ways because they they prep to have these sorts of, of conversations, and they're quite keen to have these sorts ah. of apologetic questions as as they're, you know, thinking through these issues. One of the issues that, that I see playing out is this idea of the way that God views you as well with regards to, say, salvation, as an example. Oh, yeah. And, and you see this in Islam with God's desire that you behave in a certain way— and at the end of time, your deeds will be weighed. But this goes back to what you said earlier. And you know, if you've done enough good deeds, it's going to outweigh your bad deeds. However, it's still
0: the will of Allah at the end. That's right. And I think you see On the Christian side side of things, we haven't got time to go through this in, in huge detail, obviously, because we're coming towards the end. But you know, we talked about the God question. The human question is interesting because I know you say you've you know you've written on this, and you've got things like the Human Project and all the great stuff that apologetics canada have done you know at the heart of the christian faith and the jewish faith too, actually is the understanding that human beings are made in the image of god and that imago day that image of god in genesis one you know that underpins that quite frankly underpins the whole of human rights theory and and everything else well islam doesn't have that the quran doesn't teach that In, in in the quran human beings have some responsibility. A commonly used word, the Arabic word for what we are is uh, we are kilafa, which is often translated vicegerent. So that's sort of somebody who has a bit of authority over other things. So you know we have authority over lower aspects of creation, but there is no idea of imagehood there. Well, that then sets up a whole cascading series of things, because of course, if human beings are merely slaves, then of course you know the way that God treats us might be that way. If, on the other hand, God has created us to be sons and daughters then that begins to make more sense of, well, that my God therefore might do something quite drastic in terms of actually rescuing us from the mess that we've we made. And of course, if we're talking about God who is relational knowable, the Quran in the Bible, of course, that's the vision of heaven. It's relational and knowable. Um, you know, I love that passage in Revelation 21 that says, you know, in the age to come, you know, God will dwell with his people, wiping away every tear from our eyes it will be like river it will be like genesis 3 where god walked and talked in the garden he'll be walking and talking with us again islam on the other hand is interesting it has a distant god all the way through a god is up there in heaven sending down his his instructions but not revealing himself personally i mean people miss the fact that even muhammad god never came and spoke to muhammad it was all done through an, through an angelic mediator but heaven and islam of course is you know the quran is clear it's rivers of wine fruit trees, crystal clear fountains of water, you know, uh, nubile young women for the men to enjoy. But the stark staring absence is God. God is not there, present. It is, as you say, a great sort of party in the sky, which to me, one of the horrifying prospects that raises, of what on earth happens when you get bored? I've, I've said this to Muslim friends over the years, however good the fruit is, I mean, I like an apple as much as the next person. You know, however good the wine is, well, it's not, it's not iron brew, thankfully. And however, <laughs> you know, and, have, and and quite blatantly, you know, however good you know the the uh the intimacy is i mean god i believe that sex is one of god's good creations um the fact of the matter is you're going to get bored and eternity mm. if that's the best that eternity has to offer wine women and song whereas on the christian view of things eternity is the presence of god and god is infinite so we can never ever outgrow And i love that i love that image at the end of c.s lewis's the last battle where they're where the children are in you know, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Narnia. And there's that, there's that sort of refrain of further up and further in. There is always more yeah. to discover. Uh, Islam has, you know, a very, quite almost like two-dimensional view of God. It's got a two-dimensional view of human beings. Um, it's got a two-dimensional view of sin, actually. It's a hot topic for another time. Salvation is not really a Quranic category. You know, the question, how am I saved in Islam, isn't really a, a, a category the Quran wrestles with. And it's also a very two-dimensional view of, of paradise and the age to come.
1: Well, man, there's so much more that we could talk about. I hope that this has been at least uh, enough to get people interested in, to go deeper, and your book would be a great place to do that. I want to end with one question, though, for you, a very practical question. And that is, uh, one of the things that I, I, at least that I've seen over the years interacting with people of, you know, the different world religions, but Islam in particular, is it's very easy to assume that Muslims have a specific view of God. And one of the mm-hmm. things I've seen in my conversations with Muslims over the years is you can get quite drastically different views yeah. of of the their view of God. I mean, so, for example, even with what you've just said with regards to, to Paradise, as they would talk about it, I've met Muslims that think you'll get, you know, 70 virgins, and I've met others who don't think you you will, you know, and have various interpretations to to Islam how do you How do you work that out? like what, what what's your way to engage with Muslims that come with just a variety of different interpretations? Not to say you can't find that in Christianity, of
0: course. No, exactly. And I think I think the thing is, I think you know, and I, and I think you know you and I will be, be aligned on this, Andy, that I think one of the dangers in apologetics generally is that the more you know, you're not careful, um, you know, you just become a smart ass and yeah. um and the same can happen with atheism you know you think you know so much that you meet somebody who's the atheist like, oh, okay i know how to deal with this one and with muslims you can have read so much like oh, well i know what muslims believe and it can be dangerous because then you meet you know the type who doesn't doesn't fit so i'm a great believer in the power of conversational evangelism and and asking questions so you know if you've and the great thing with that is if you've read nothing about islam and i love that a new muslim family moving next door to you not a problem you can begin with you know, invite them around for a coffee and say, well, I'm a Christian. I, I've never met Muslims before. What do you guys believe? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you've read enough, you know, if you've read enough to, 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 know, to know a lot, and I've watched, I can't think of anything better to read than, 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 than my book, you know. <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? <laughs> no, exactly. Um, if you've read a lot and you know a lot, well, again, start the same way. Start asking questions. Now, when I ask a Muslim questions, you know, I've got the advantage of total sort of 20 years of thinking about this. I've got more processing going on. So I will hear things and go, oh, I wonder if. Um, and sometimes I might gently say, you know, well, that's fascinating what you describe. Where, where is that coming from? And if they say oh, it's from the Quran, then I might, oh, I might occasionally go, actually, with respect, I, I don't think it is. But do tell me more. And where this is the most significant, Andy, you will often meet Muslims who'll tell you that God is a God of love. I, I come across that quite frequently because I think as human beings, we're wired to desire a God of love. As Augustine, you know, the Church Father said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in in Thee. I used to, when I meet Muslims who would tell me they believe in a God of love, I confess in my early days, I made the, the ridiculous mistake of trying to correct them and go, no, 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 that's not the God of the Quran, which is which is true, by the way. Now what I do is I take an Acts 17 approach. You know, we'll Paul at the altar to the unknown gods. He doesn't chastise the Athenians for their stupidity. He goes, oh, yeah, unknown God, dude, let me tell you what that is. And so now when I hear meet Muslims who tell me that they believe in a God of love or perhaps they describe a vision of paradise that's closer to the Christian one, to try and extend the kind of right-handed friendship and go, mate. You're right. God is a God of love. He has designed us for relationship with Him, but with respect, the God that you're describing sounds more like the God of the Bible than the God of the Quran. Come on home. Come on home. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I both knew the late Nabil Qureshi, You know whose yeah. book and whose testimony of his journey from Islam to Christianity. I love the title, "Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus." Because Nabil, if if listeners haven't read that story, go go get hold of a copy. Because he he wanted intimacy with God. He wanted to know God better. And as he pursued that quest for connection, it was Jesus at the end of it.
1: And I think that that's a great place to end. I would argue that one of the greatest apologetics with Muslims is to give them Jesus. Yes. Uh, Thank you, Andy, for joining us on the AC Podcast. It's been great to have you. Thanks again. Listeners, this has been a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we will come back next week with more things to think about. Andy Steiger here. Did you know that in World War II, Canada was known for having some of the best pilots in the world? It's recorded that Churchill approached Canada for pilots, and when they only had a few to offer, he responded by building into the next generation. He said he would prefer a thousand pilots from you later than ten today. Here at AC, we love the work we do, but we also feel called to training up future leaders to share their hope in Jesus it's our desire to train up well over a thousand. I pray that one day Canada is known for training up some of the best Christian leaders in the world. One way we're seeking to do that in 2022 is through our Leadership Summit on February 4th to 6th. This event is open to men and women to apply for a special weekend of training and networking at Sasquatch Resort. Please note, this event is subsidized, so don't let finances hold you back. If you're interested or know someone who is, you can find out more on our website. Space is limited, so register today. Thank you.